This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, March 4th, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. Jay Cost argues in his new book, A Republic No More, that the United States has turned into a special interest democracy. Following a discussion of the book held at the Cato Institute, I spoke with Cost about his detailed history of American political corruption. My introduction to the subject of your book seems like uh, it's something you quote right up front, which is Plunkett of Tammany Hall. And uh, that book goes into a whole lot of different elements. Uh, and the distinction that you point out that this book draws is this idea between honest corruption and dishonest corruption. So what is, uh, in in Plunkett's mind, honest corruption right. and and how does that inform what you've written? Well, Plunkett has, first of all, George Washington Plunkett was a very interesting character. He was a boss at Tammany Hall, and he defined um, honest graft as, I seen my opportunities and I took them. And he gives the example of he knows where a transportation project is going to be built, and nobody there wants the land right now. So he goes and purchases the land, and he says, what's the harm in that? And it's meant as a defense of the Tammany system, and on the merits, it's it's completely unbelievable persuasive and I don't I don't I don't quote George Washington Plunkett to echo him but to sort of suggest that there's that corruption is sort of um, a nebulous concept that typically when you think of corruption you think of perp walks you think of extortion you think of bribery or kickbacks but there is to borrow a phrase an honest form of corruption which is putting private interests ahead of the public good. Whether or not it is legal or illegal, it is still contrary to the Republican principles of our country's founding. And so it can be thought of as a corruption of the republic. There are a lot of things that operate in tension when you talk about corruption. There's the private interest. There is the public interest. There are many ideas about what constitutes corruption, at least in the campaign finance context in recent years. The appearance of corruption uh, until recently was quite enough. So is, is there any line that you can draw that says, well, clearly this category of behavior is corruption uh, that you know most people might not view as such? Well, it's, it's a hard – it's a hard – contrast to make which is not to say that I don't I don't try but it is to say that it, it this is these are questions that as I was beginning to formulate the hypothesis of the book I struggled with and I mean co- compounding the sort of point that you make is is the is the alternative hypothesis you know, advanced by Alexander Hamilton, for instance, that a little bit of corruption can be good. You know, Abraham Lincoln, for instance, to pass uh, the 13th Amendment through the Congress had to effectively bribe a couple members of Congress from New Jersey. Isn't it a good thing that he had the resources to do that? Um, So I sort of think that, you know, we define corruption in this broad sense of uh, behavior that runs contrary to the public interest. You might think that we're going to get ourselves caught in a philosophical briar patch and we're not going to know exactly what to look for. But when we turn from the theory to the history, that problem often melts away so quickly. Um, You can't not look at the tariff regime of the late 
19th century and see anything except corruption. It's hard to look at agricultural subsidies and see anything except corruption as I define it. Um, similarly, the patronage process of, say, the 1870s and, and what Ulysses Grant did as president with patronage. You know, we can debate, well, maybe this is certain things might be corrupt, but in the public interest, or maybe this isn't corrupt, or maybe it's not. But, you know, when we start looking at actual historical concrete examples, there are so many outrageous instances that the questions just sort of all answer themselves. You reserve some of the worst abuses of uh, government for the end. And uh, what is the I guess, single worst either federal program or uh, episode that you draw out as this is, this is corruption at, the, at its highest? Well, it was a tough competition. <laughs> there were, there were, it was pretty heated at the end there. The semifinals and the finals were, were, were pretty tough. It was, it was hard, you know, because you have things like, um, you know, corporate, corporate titans paying effectively nothing and corporate taxes while, you know, groups that don't get special carve-outs are paying an obscenely high rate. Um, you know, you have uh, Medicare, Medicare Part B, the reimbursement rates are effectively written by the American Medical Association at the cost of billions of dollars a year. Uh, that's pretty stiff competition, but in the end, the, the victor, so to speak, was the behavior of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac in the lead-up to the financial crisis of 2008, and the way that they were able to control the political process such that the response from elected officials to pretty outrageous behavior was largely silence. Uh, the extent of their operation, it, it, it didn't last as long. Like, for instance, organized labor was a very powerful operation that really lasted, I would say, from the mid-1930s to the mid-70s. They were, they were very powerful. Um, the reign of, the, of Fannie and Freddie probably lasts from about the mid-90s until 2008. So it's a shorter period of time. But during that period, I am hard-pressed to think of any interest or faction, at least in the post-war era, being able to determine the outcome of public policy so thoroughly. What I think is really interesting that I found in the, in the book, and, and this sort of gets back to the previous question about, you know, what's what's corruption and, and, and what is it, you know, how do we know when it's there, is that so often, you know, programs, you know, when they're, when they're initiated, um, they're initiated with um, really noble purposes. And, you know, that those who initiated the program are remembered fondly for their leadership. You know, Franklin Roosevelt is often ranked as the number two best president in most historians' polls. And, and if you give reasons why, they, they'd answer the New Deal and break down various New Deal policies, like agricultural subsidies, for instance, um, you know, celebrated. What I find so interesting about public policy is that um, interest groups can capture them over a period of time, that the policies themselves, when they're formulated and implemented, might look very strong. But interest groups are, and by interest groups, I, I define that term broadly, any private interest that has business with the government, that there are, there's this tendency to find uh, ways to make the most of their situation. 
and over time the policies get worse and or I should say maybe not worse and worse but increasingly corrupted or the distance between the stated premise and the actual result grows wider. Um, I think farm subsidies are, are one example of that. I think probably the best example of that is is the tax code. Um, and and this is and it, it the tax code is this fascinating instance of history repeating itself. That the tariff regime that dominated the 19th century, the purpose of it was to uh, stimulate American industry. And over time, uh, business interests uh, gained control over the tariffs and were able to sort of undermine the noble intentions that people like Alexander Hamilton and Henry Clay had for it. So they got rid of it and they replaced it with the tax code as an alternative. And over time, business interests got control of the tax code and perverted it for their own interests. And it's just this fascinating, fascinating thing. It's sort of a, it's not progressive, it's almost sort of regressive. There is one uh, line or chapter in uh, Plunkett of Tammany Hall that uh, continues to sort of reverberate whenever I think about it. I'm from Kentucky. There's a large uh, state workforce there, and yet union participation rates are are, are quite low. And uh, one of his complaints was, well, look, we won the election, so why can't we put our guys in there? Why can't we you know, clean house in, in, in the old days? Uh, like in the old days where you didn't have uh, a robust civil service system that effectively protected state workers from arguably, again, uh, politics. Right. And I guess that's where, for me at least, what is in the public interest and also in the interest of this uh, admittedly corrupt uh, and person who engages in graft uh, might actually align where – there's a perfectly there are perfectly legitimate reasons why you wouldn't want a large protected uh, civil service system. Yeah, well, that's an that's a that's a good point. It's something that I thought about as I was working on the book, um, because the patronage regime that Plunkett was defending, and this is the the spoils system or the idea that to the victor go the spoils. Um, you know, it didn't come about by accident. It was a solution to a collective action dilemma that politicians faced, particularly presidents. Uh, the, the political process to select presidents was originally supposed to be independent of the people at large, but that begins to shift in 1800. The election of 1800 is effectively democratic, but between that, the, over the next quarter century, it becomes actually democratic. And it, it's an enormous collective action dilemma for for presidential candidate because to, to get the requisite majority of electors, you have to unite a coalition that spans the length and breadth of the country. And, and who is ultimately to benefit from this coalition? The answer is the victor. So then the question becomes, how do you incentivize that mass of people that you need to participate to acquire this victory if you're the only one who actually gets to hold the office. And this is where the spoil system comes into play. And it is not a coincidence, in my opinion, that the first president to engage on it on a mass basis, Andrew Jackson, was also the first president uh, elected by the public at large. And, you know, the spoil system had, and I, this is something that I sort of thought about as I was writing the book, and I, I didn't put it in there because it wasn't exactly on topic, but, you know, the spoil system was, by the time that it was eliminated on the 
federal level in 1883 had become a thoroughly offensive regime that was unjustifiable and things had gone too far. But there is something to be said in many respects for its small r Republican quality which is to say that anybody could hold any job. This is a point that Andrew Jackson specifically made in public statements as he was cleaning the federal bureaucracy out. These jobs are not so complicated that anybody is necessary, and the office holders should not view them with a sense of entitlement. Uh, and we have replaced that with a more Wilsonian view of a professionalized bureaucratic core, which brings virtues of its own. But it also undermines this, this sort of notion of a quality, and it, it creates a, a government caste, if you will, that did not, 150 years ago, the government caste that we take for granted today did not really exist. So what you describe in the book and what you've described here, uh, it sounds like noble goals, corrupted over time, uh, self-interested parties glom on. And uh, we end up with a with a system that is basically corrupt and alienated, perhaps from its initial purpose. So, uh, it sounds to me like shakeup is in order at any given moment uh, when you have these systems that are embedded and covered with uh, cruft, so to speak. Well, you know the problem that we have in reform. And you're right, you know, reform is long overdue. But, you know, Mad Madison made a good point about um, legislators, the people's representatives, is that le legislators' uh, preferences for legislation can come from a variety of sources. It can come from an honest assessment of the people's preferences, and it can also come from their own personal interests. And this is a problem. This is a problem with Republican government, small r Republican government, is that how, and it's also, and Madison was a very, very, for his day, advanced thinking on political economy. Because here he sort of offers a, a sort of protein version of the principal agent problem, which is to say, how do you get legislators, the agents of the people, to actually do what the people want? This is a problem. And this is a problem that reformers confront now because we're effectively asking Congress to reform itself, which Congress does not want to do. And Congress will only reform itself if it feels like the alternative is electoral defeat. And in, as long as the country does not pose that those the option to Congress in such a stark manner, it will avoid reform. And in fact, what we typically see are pseudo-reforms. This is a very common thing that happens over the years. For instance, in the late 19th century, there was a cue and cry for mitigation of the gold standard because deflation was so pernicious in the West. So they passed all these silver bills that, you know, allowing for the coinage of silver, but it didn't do anything. All they were were really payoffs to the mining owners in the West, but they sort of satisfied the, the news of the day. And, and we see that a lot with Congress. We, every, you know, I mean, how many times has Congress celebrated itself for enacting PAYGO legislation and you just, but you read the fine print and you realize, oh, there's no such thing as PAYGO in practice, you know. Or another good example, a more recent one would be the uh, ban on earmarks. Oh, you know, the House Republicans, the Tea Party Republicans came in and banned all the earmarks. Fantastic. Except for the Center Against Government Waste has found, uh, you know, earmarks are still there. Uh, fewer in number, but also uh, more hidden than they ever were because there are, quote unquote, no more earmarks, which means nobody actually has to report the earmarks that they're 
really inserting in the legislation. So CAGW has said, you know, we've tried to track down as many as we can, uh, but we know there's more. They're, they're too hard to find now. So, you know, that's the s- sort of thing Congress will do, that they'll, they'll pass reform to get a good headline and get people to uh, – to, to, to shut up about it. It's this old line that Boyce Penrose uh, said to Andrew Carnegie when the, uh, his steel workers were striking. Um, uh, Penrose said, give them a little sugar now and then down the road we'll raise the, we'll raise the tariff later on. Don't worry about it. It's sort of the approach to just keep people quiet and you know, on to the next thing. What do you see as, uh, at least historically in the United States, the biggest success story with respect to overcoming Corruption. I would say that the the uh, biggest success is the is the Pendleton Civil Service Reform Act of 1883, and I and I also think it's illustrative for people who want to reform the system. Uh, you know, the system resists reform, and people can come up with fantastic ideas and do all the hard policy work, um, and it's not going to go anywhere. But then a crisis can hit, and the reformers have an opportunity. And if they've done the hard work to create good legislation, they can take advantage of the moment. And that's exactly what happened with civil service reform. Um, reformers had been opposed to the corruption in the civil service regime for, for a decade or more up to that point. E- even into the 1850s, things were getting pretty extreme. And so we're talking about 1883, so nearly 30 years of extreme kind of corruption. And there were a lot of good proposals, but they never went anywhere. And then President Garfield was assassinated while waiting for a train in Washington, D.C. And the person who assassinated him was a crazy man, but claimed that he was with the stalwart faction of the Republican Party, which was basically the pro-patronage faction. And it destroyed the reputation of the patronage regime so utterly and completely that the Republicans in Congress... uh, quickly turned around to save their own electoral hides, passed a, a, a reform bill, and they dusted off an old bill from uh, George Pendleton of Ohio uh, and passed it uh, to try and save their skins. And without knowing it, the knowing really understanding the full scope of what they did, passing the Pendleton Civil Service Reform Bill obliterated the patronage system so that 20 years later, it was completely and totally a thing of the past. And I think that, you know, it's easy to read a book about corruption and become dispirited. I know because I wrote the book and I was often dispirited in writing it. But I think that you can look at moments where the system becomes vulnerable to reform. And if the reformers have thought things through and are ready to take advantage of that opportunity, you can actually accomplish some real change. Jay Cost is author of the new book, A Republic No More. We spoke following an event for the book, which you can watch at our website, cato.org.